Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've had this. I, I would venture to guess that we've all had this happen at different times in our life. If we were to go around and share that, that people have made assumptions about you in your life based on just knowing part of who you are. Maybe you've had that happen in different times. Sometimes it happens like in work relationships. We know people through work or certain area of our life and they assume some things about us because they don't really know a whole lot about us or or vice versa. Maybe it's people that don't know you and in your work and what you do or, or whatever it is. And and we take part of that person and we kind of make some assumptions that maybe aren't true or can be unfair. And if you've ever had that happen to you, it's not real great. You don't usually, it's usually not a good thing that you feel that way when somebody does that to you. I've had that happen to me multiple times and that can be frustrating. But I was thinking about this week, a particular time in which I actually did that to a friend. Uh, I made some assumptions about this guy and uh, it was probably unfair. And, and I was thinking about this. He's a guy that I used to play basketball with. We used to play pickup together and I got to know uh, Matt through playing basketball with him in, uh, uh, just pick up games and then we got to be friends and we played together a lot and then we ended up playing on some teams together some leagues different men's leagues and uh, I, I liked playing with him I enjoyed playing basketball with him we got along fine but on the court he was rough I mean he was gruff and he was kind of hard on everybody and he yelled at everybody on your own team not the other team I'm not even talking about talking trash to the other team I'm talking about your own team and he'd tell you if you missed a shot he'd be like ah. Oh, what are you doing? Come on. You know, and he'd get on you. Or if you, if you went up for a rebound and somebody else got the rebound, he'd say this to everybody on his team all the time. You got to get tougher. You got to get stronger. And then he'd go, hit the weight room. And he'd run back down the court and he'd yell at you and he'd tell you all this stuff. And so he's pretty gruff kind of guy, like kind of, you know, certainly an edge to him. And so I remember one day, uh, walking out onto the soccer field at, at Rock Creek with my very impressionable six-year-old and walking up and there was Matt and he was going to be my son's soccer coach. And I went, Oh no, that's, that was what was in my mind. Great. I, I had pictures of my impressionable six-year-old and Matt yelling at him, toughen up, hit the weight room, you know, like, and I'm thinking this is going to be awful. This is really not going to be good. But over the next couple of months, uh, he, he coached my son's soccer team. And as I watched him and, and watched him do it, it turned out that he was an incredible kid soccer coach. He was kind and he was patient. He was knowledgeable. He motivated the kids. He, he got them to have fun when they were playing. He'd walk around with a big pocket full of Jolly Ranchers. And if they did something really good, he'd walk over and he'd slip them a candy. And these kids loved him. And he was a great coach. And, and I remember after the fact, having the conversation with him, uh, even telling him, like, I unfairly judged you as, as my son's soccer coach. Because I remember talking to guys I play basketball with and going, you're not going to believe who's my kid's soccer coach. And they were all like, oh, that's going to be bad, <laughs> right? And it wasn't. He was great. And he was an awesome coach. And it actually kind of deepened our friendship through that. But I had unfairly judged him. I had seen just part in in one little area of his life and I'd unfairly judged him. And so when we do that and when that happens to us, it can be hurtful and it can be unhelpful. But certainly so. And this is what I want us to think about today. When we do that in what we believe and our worldview and the way we see things, if we kind of make some assumptions and we move out without having all the information and we start to kind of make some assumptions about the way the world is, uh, I would say as a Christian, as we're talking about the idea of a Christian biblical worldview, uh, we can take our experience 
and then take part of the Bible and make some assumptions and get off into some things that are not a biblical worldview, that are not a picture of what God has called us to. And so what we've been talking about is how do we guard against that? And there's a few ways that we've said. One, we want to make sure we're reading God's word and letting it stand over us and we're reading it in context. We're taking what it says and we're not taking it out of context. Last week, we talked about the importance of reading along the Bible, the whole story of the Bible, and making sure we're fitting things in that understanding of the whole and not just part. But today, what I want us to do, and I've I've said this multiple times as we've been in this short series on how to develop a biblical worldview, is I want us to think about how we read across the Bible. If, if we, if we don't do this, and what I mean by that is, is what we often refer to as systematic theology. And we take what the Bible says about any given issue and we want to see everything the Bible says, not just part. Because if we do that, if we take just part, maybe based on our experience or part of the Bible or partial knowledge that we have, and then we make assumptions, what can happen is we actually can be doing the exact opposite of what God calls us to do. We are called to glorify God in everything. Uh, The Westminster Catechism says the very first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And glorify carries with it this connotation to reflect back what God is like, to show to the world what God is like. And if we take our experience and we take part of the Bible and we make some assumptions and then we start to show forth what God is like and it's not what he's like. We're doing the very opposite of what God has called us to do. And so it's important we think about how do we guard against that and how do we grow in that? And one of those things is this idea of reading across the Bible, this systematic approach that we would want to see everything the Bible says about different issues and take the whole of that and let that inform our thinking rather than just taking part or just taking our experience and taking part. And so what I want us to do is just think about this idea of reading across the Bible today. And so what I'm going to do for, uh, try to do in a short time here is just give you kind of a, uh, a picture of that, of what that looks like to read across the Bible. And I was trying to think of what subject do we pick and how do we go at it? And this may not have been the best idea, but I decided we're going to talk about the church and that's a big, broad topic. And so we're not going to cover everything. It's not going to be fully every part of it, but I want us to think about what the Bible says about what the church is and what it does what God designed it to be. What even is it when we say the church? And so seeing what the Bible says on that, and I'm going to tell you why I picked that to kind of do this as a test case as we think about how to read systematically together about what the Bible says on a subject. And there's two reasons. One, I mentioned the very first week we started in this. Barna Research did a, 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 a survey just in the last year, and they came to the conclusion that 6% of those that profess to be Christians in America today have a truly biblical worldview. Six. Six percent. And one of those things as a pastor for a long time, the last 10 years that I see over and over, is one of those giant holes is the way we see the church. The way we see our ecclesiology. That is the way in which we believe what the church is and what it does and what it's about. And so I see that one. But then what really pushed me to this was something that I read this week. Same group, Barna Research does all this research on what people believe and why. And they came out with a thing just last week that said this. That since COVID has happened, since the beginning of this year, starting in about March until now, if we take everyone that was part of a local body in America, that was part of a church in America, 
And we fast forward to, we look at January 1 and then now, like the last couple of weeks. What they said in their research is that one third of those that were regularly attending or involved in a church are no longer involved in a church. One third. Now, that's not talking about people who right now are, I feel like I should stay at home and what's best for me is to watch online and be connected in that way. We're talking about people that were maybe doing that and then just stopped. That are doing nothing. That have no connection at all to the church. One third. So one third of the church in America has suddenly just gone, huh, I don't need this. Or I don't know what the reasons are. But I want us to think for just a moment about what the church is, because what that says to me is we don't understand what the church is or what it does or what God has designed it to be. And so to help us think about this idea of thinking systematically through it, we're going to use the church as as our uh, topic, our subject. And this is what I want us to ask. It's just what does the Bible say about what the church is and what it does? Secondly, what are the blind spots that obscure this so much in our culture? And then lastly, why is this so important to what Christ calls us to as believers? So let's just start with what is the church and what does it do? Now, I say this a lot. If you've been around Church of the Apostles the last 10 years, hopefully you've heard this. You've probably heard this many times, but I do say it frequently and repeatedly, and I think for good reason. But one of the things we say here is that you don't go to church, you are the church. And I try to say that I used to say it a lot more and I've realized lately I haven't said it quite as much, but you don't go to church. You are the church. The church is not a building. It's not a program. It's not a place that we go to, although we use it that way in our language today. We do say that I'll meet you at the church or where is your church? And we mean the building. But biblically speaking, that's a terrible way to use even that that language. But the church is not this place, but it's the people of God. And and I want you to think about that. And I want to show you that even just what we just read in a second ago in Ephesians, if you want to turn to Ephesians with me, we're going to look at uh, part of chapter one and and part of chapter five and actually a couple other verses in there. But if you just want to stay there in Ephesians, that'll be helpful for now. And so I'm going to pick up again with what I read just a second ago. And in verse 19 of chapter one, it's talking about the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. So talking about God's love for us and his power and what he's done. And then verse 20 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him above the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named. And not only in this age, but also the one that is to come. And he talking about God, the father put all things under his feet, Jesus's feet And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so he he says that the, the church is the body of Christ. It's those that have been saved and redeemed and brought into this relationship. If you flip over to Ephesians chapter five, I'm going to pick up in verse 25. Paul's talking about the relationship between husbands and wives, and he's making the analogy to the way Christ loves the church. And although he's talking about the way that husbands and wives should uh, care for each other and love one another, I want us to focus on what he says here in this passage about the church. And so chapter 5, verse 25 of Ephesians, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so just taking what he says there and we look at what Paul says in all of Ephesians and and we even could zoom out and look at all the epistles and the New Testament theology and and what it's telling us. And and what we get is, is the church is a people that God has redeemed and brought to himself. It's not a building. It's not an organization. It's the people of God that have been saved by God that have been brought into this relationship with him. And if we we use the language even of Ephesians chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then in verse 3, he says, you were by nature children of wrath. And in verse 4, he says, but God being rich in mercy with the great love in which he's loved us, he's caused you to become alive and you're now this new thing in Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. And now you've been brought into God's family because of what Christ has done. And so when we start to talk about what is the church and what the Bible says about the church, is it's these people that God has brought into a saving relationship with him through what Jesus has done. You don't go to church, you are the church. I mean, just think about the language that the scripture uses and the way it puts it together. You then are saved. Your sin has been dealt with by what Jesus has done. You're now a new creation. Now God himself comes and lives inside and with you at all times in the Holy Spirit. You are now the very temple of God. It's not a building anymore. When Jesus dies and the temple, uh, the veil that, that separated the holy of holies and the temple, it's now torn in two because God doesn't dwell there now. He dwells in and with you. You are now the church. You are the, the, the dwelling place of God because of what Jesus has done. And so when we say, what is the church? It is all believers of all time that have put their faith in Jesus. Now, if we were to go deeper into kind of a systematic and thinking about how that pertains. Well, what does that mean about the old Testament? I would say the church includes the old Testament believers. We could go back to uh, Genesis 15 when God's speaking to Abraham and it says that uh, he counted it to him as righteousness because he believed God. He was saved through his faith and believing what God would do. And so I'm not going to go into that just for the sake of time, but you can read in Acts chapter 7, Deuteronomy 4, it talks about the Old Testament being part of the church, the assembling of believers. Even though they were believing in what God was going to do in the future, they're still saved by grace through faith and brought into that. And so the church is simply all believers of all time that have put their faith in what God was doing in Jesus. But then I want us to think about the analogy that's used here. Paul uses it here in chapter 1 there in verse 23 when he says, uh, or 22 and 23 it says he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And so we see that analogy. We say, well, what is the church? It's believers. But then we're called the body of Christ. And I want us to think about that. But we're also called a family, a family of faith that we're saved into a family. And so we go, well, what is the church? It's all believers at all times. It's now a family That is the body of Christ. And I want us to think about those kind of analogies that are used in the New Testament. And so systematic, we want to look at all the things the Bible says. We could go back to Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' brothers, 
and his mother show up to see him. And it says he's surrounded by people and he's teaching and they come and they say, hey, Jesus, your mom's here and your brother's here. Which, by the way, if you grew up in the Catholic Church, it says Mary was a perpetual virgin. The Bible says that's not true, that she had other children, that Jesus had brothers. And so his brothers, his physical flesh and blood brothers show up with his mom and they want to see him. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 48, who is my mother And who are my brothers and stretching out his hand towards his disciples? He says, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is he saying? Jesus is saying you come to faith. You transfer your trust in what you're doing into what God is doing. You put your faith in who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus, what the father has done for us in Jesus. And we put our faith in him and Jesus says, you're my family. This is my brothers and my sisters and my mother. He said, this is what it looks like. And he uses that language. But then we also see that in the New Testament. Paul uses similar language. Uh, First Timothy chapter five, he's writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor. And he's telling them how to love the church, the body of people that God has given him there to care for as a pastor in that way. And what Paul says to him is, is that uh, don't rebuke older men, but he says, encourage them as you would a father and younger men as brothers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. And he says, this is the way that you should respond to those people that are in your care. You should look at them as your family. You should treat them as brothers and sisters. And that language is used over and over. And if we're doing systematic, we would take all those passages in which it's talked that way. And you lay them out and you look at that and you start to get a a picture that's shown. That the church is people that have been saved, that have been brought into this relationship, but that we're called to live as a family. Uh, The language of the New Testament, body of Christ, the family of faith, but then also this idea of the one another passages, the way we're to care for one another. And you put all that together and what you have is the church is a body Uh, of people that have been saved that now live as a family that love and see each other that way brothers and sisters in christ you can go and read uh, i was reading this it's from about 130 a.d guy writes about the church and he's talking about how they're different and how they look so different from the roman culture they're in and it says they they share everything and then he, he makes this distinction He says they have a common table, but they don't have a common bed. And what he's saying is the sexual ethic within them is not like the culture. It's not like this hedonistic. They just do everything. He says, no, no, no. They share all their stuff as a family would, but there's sexual purity in the middle of it. And so they stood apart. But what he was saying, what he was writing and saying there is they look like a family. They love each other like a family does. And I want you to think about, so we we could go and we could look at the Bible and we could see all the places where it says that this is what the church is. It's a people that saved, that lives as a family that looks this way. But I want you to think about the theological kind of undergirding of that. We could just look at the areas where it says that and not really get to the deeper why. But why does God talk about us as a family like that? Well, simply God is our father. If you go back in the most literal sense to the very first people, and you talked to Adam and Eve, and you said to them, who is your dad? Well, God is. <laughs> There's no, this is where it goes. Every single one of us comes from 
He is our creator. He's very literally our father. That's why Jesus comes and says, when the disciples say, teach us how to pray. He says, when you pray, you say, our father of heart in heaven. You call him dad. He is your father. And so think about the, the image that's there. And then we have rebelled against him. And we become by nature children of wrath, the Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, he sends his son, Jesus, who takes on humanity, the fullness of flesh, who is very literal in a literal sense now our brother because he goes through all the same things and the temptations we have gone through. And he lays down his life for us and he restores us to the relationship with the father and we're adopted back in. And so God, our father, sends Jesus, our brother, to save us into his family. And we're adopted back in because of what Christ has done for us. And so when you read in the New Testament, it talks about how we're a family and we're brothers and sisters and God is our father. There's very good reason why. But I want us to think about what that means for us as the church. It's not a building. It's not a program. It's not a place. It's a people that are saved to live as a family, to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then I also want us to think about that analogy of the body of Christ there that he says in Ephesians chapter one to the church, which is his body. And just think about the the image that God's giving us and inspiring there as the body. It says Christ is the head of the church and we are the body. Part of that, we could say we're to be uh, glorifying God. We're to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. We're to show people what God is like by literally serving and caring and speaking the truth to them. But there's also the analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. And he says, God has brought you in to be part of this body. And each one of you has been gifted differently in the Holy Spirit. And we're all part of this body. Some of us are like a hand and some of us are like an ear and some of us are like an eye. And that's the, the, the language that Paul uses in first Corinthians 12. And what he's saying is that God saves us into this community and he gifts us in different ways. And then Paul says he gifts you in different ways for the good of those around you. God saves us into this, that we would then love others in that way. And so we're this body that lives as a family that's here to serve and love and care for one another. And this is what the church is. And I would tell you from what I have seen in my life and what I have experienced, that that is not usually what people mean when they say the church. And we end up having not a biblical worldview of what the church is. We have something totally different. And sometimes it's, it's because of experience that we've had. Sometimes it's because of ignorance of what the Bible says. But the picture that we're given is something very different. You don't go to church. You are the church to be part of this family. And God has gifted you to serve and care for those around you in wonderful ways that only you can contribute. Because we're all gifted differently. And then he calls us into this. And we gather together to use those gifts. And so that leads us to well, what does the church do? And what does the church do is it makes disciples that make disciples. It's the one uh, marching order that Jesus gives to the church. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I commanded. That's what he says to do. That you're now this family of faith and you've all been gifted uniquely for the good of those around you to help make disciples that make disciples. And that's what he tells us. 
And so one of the ways we think about that or we say that, and I think it's, it's comes from a systematic theology of laying out well, what does the Bible tell us to do? As we say, we want to grow up in and out. We want to grow in our relationship with the Lord, with one another, and to those that don't yet know Jesus. And that's what a fully formed disciple looks like. But we are called to do that together as a family of faith that is the body of Christ that is working together to show what God is like. And here's the thing I want us to consider. When we talk about what the church does, growing in that relationship with the Lord and with one another and to the world, I think if we lay out everything that the Bible tells us to do as the church, as this body, as this family of faith, you cannot do it on your own. It's not possible. It's not possible to be faithful to what God calls you to as the church on your own. But it talks about growing in our relationship with the father, that up relationship that we are called out to assemble together for his worship, to hear the preaching of the word, to inspire and encourage one another to grow in our relationship with the Lord, to to offer our praise. We are made to praise him. Ephesians one, Paul says it to live for the praise of his glory. And we're called to do that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't worship God at home on your own or in your car. You can and we should and we should be living lives of worship. But it doesn't replace the call to come and do that corporately together. God tells us that that's the way we're designed. And that's his design for our good to grow in that up relationship. But also when we talk about growing in our relationship with one another, go make disciples The way Jesus showed us to make disciples is he brings people to himself and he walks with them daily and he's speaking the truth and we're encouraging one another and we're growing in that. So we're called to minister to one another. Ephesians four, Paul says, pastors, teachers, elders in the church are called to equip the saints, which the Bible calls you a saint. Not because you're perfect, because Jesus is perfect and you are in him. And so you are now a saint before God. And it says the pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And we've all been uniquely gifted. And the leaders in the church are called to help you recognize those gifts and plug you in. That we can then do that together as a family of faith that is the body of Christ. And so growing in that relationship with one another, you can't do that on your own. You can't just say, well, I'll just stay at home and do this myself and I don't know anybody else. That's where we take part of it. You can hear me say, well, you are the church. You don't go to church. And you go, well, great. I'm the church and I don't need anybody else. Okay, well, now you've ignored everything else the New Testament says about being the church. And we've taken part of it and we've distorted it. And so to grow in our relationship with the father and then with one another, we need one another. Can't do that on our own. But then also growing in our relationship with the world that doesn't yet know Jesus. To go make disciples of those that have not yet met Jesus. Jesus tells us people will know you're my disciples by the way you love each other. How can you go make disciples individually on your own when Jesus says one of the ways that people are going to know you as my disciple is the way that you love others, your family, this body that you've been saved into. We can't do it on our own. We're not called to do it on our own. None of us has been gifted with every gift that we're so perfectly put together that I can do all of this. I need my brothers and sisters in faith as we walk that out together. 
And so God calls us into this as a family of faith, the body of Christ, to go make disciples that make disciples. So here's the question. How do we get this so wrong? How do we get a third of people who are part of the church that I I hope are believers and really love the Lord? And all of a sudden they go, ah, this is I don't have to do this. This is optional. Where do we go off? That we get the exact thing of everything God tells us so much of what he says and we go, I don't really have to do any of that. I've thought about this a lot the last 10 years of why that's so difficult when we have these discussions about this is what the Bible says. And people kind of, I don't know. And I think it's real clear what the Bible says and it's all throughout it. And I think part of it is that we live in the most individualistic society in the history of the world. And we take everything and we, we, we see it through the lens of God saved me and I have a relationship with God and it's me and God and I don't really need anybody else. And then we combine that with a consumer culture. That's everything is commodities like I'm giving you this and you're giving me this. And if you meet my needs, then I'll give you this. And so the church becomes that way. We shop for a church to be part of. And if you do things that I like enough in the way that I like them, then maybe I'll come to your church. You hear the way I said that? Maybe I'll come to your church. There's only one church. And it's a people. It's not a building or a place. And God has saved you into the church to love those around you. Now, that doesn't mean you don't go find a church where you fit to use your gifts and where God's called you. That's fine. But the idea that I'm going to shop around and if you cease to be doing exactly what I want, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. Is not a biblical worldview. We've completely missed it. We are saved into a family as the body of Christ to love and care for one another, to be equipped so that we can make disciples together. And what happens is we see it as a service provider. We don't see it as our family. I want you just to think about that analogy. I thought about this this morning. If we are saved into a family of faith and the church is now our family. I was thinking about this with my children. If I saw my kids once a month for an hour. And the rest of the time was like, hey, I, I, I watch. I looked at your picture for an hour last week. I'm good. I don't need to see you. And Jesus says we're the body of Christ that is a family. Our brothers and sisters in faith. And we go, ah, I'm good. And I thought about that this morning, looking at my children and thinking about that. And going, How can we do that? I think it's unbelief in what God has told us. I have saved you into a family. And you need one another. And we go, I don't believe that. Not sure. I can do this on my own. And what happens is we end up with not a biblical worldview. We end up with something wholly other. It's not what God's called us to. Or the same is true of the analogy of a body. If you're the hand... Right. Paul uses this in in first Corinthians 12, the eye and the ear and the hand and the hand can't say to the ear, I don't need you. But if you're a hand. 
and you're just operating that way, what are you missing? If you can't see and you can't hear and you're not connected to that part and you only have the hand, how healthy are you going to be? And the answer is not very. It's going to be a mess. And the same is true for me. I need the body of Christ that has those other gifts loving me in that way because I don't have all. None of us has all of it. And so God saves us into this. And so here's where I want to end. I want us to think about why this is so important of what Jesus calls us into. And first and foremost, I would just say this. Jesus is our king who has done everything for us. And in our relationship with him. He has died to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived to live in the way in which we have never done for ourselves. He does every bit of it for us. He deserves all of our worship and all of our affection and all of our obedience. And so Jesus says, don't neglect to meet together. He calls us into this family of faith and he says, this is what it looks like. And this is the way I've designed it. And so if you don't get anything else other than just simply We need to be obedient to our king. Our life and who we are is held together in him and he alone deserves all of our obedience and all of our faithfulness and all of our love. And this is the way he says it works. He saves us into a family, but I also want you to get the other side of that. Everything that Jesus does for us, it's for our best. I don't want you to hear me saying, well, just do it because Jesus says to do it the end. No, I want you to understand what Jesus says. His commands are not burdensome. He knows exactly what we need and he calls us into this for our good and his glory. He tells you this because he loves you and he wants your best. And so when we gather together and it's a visible expression of what Jesus has done for us, there is the glorious praise to his name because of who he is. And then a third of the church goes, okay, whatever. My heart breaks that that is true. That God calls us and saves us and we go, ah, I don't need that. I'm good on my own. It's just not true. We're believing lies. Jesus says otherwise. But then I want you to think about just his design and the importance of that. He's designed us to grow up into the fullness that he's created us to be with the gifts of others. And he talks about the the church equipping the saints for the work of the ministry that we can grow up into the fullness of what Christ has called us to be. And none of us can do that on our own. We weren't designed to do that on our own. We're not made to do that on our own. But the other side of that is not only are we not made to do it on our own, but when we come together and we're functioning as we should, it's going to show a light in a way to those that don't yet know Jesus that they go, I want to be part of that. God says that he tells us that, that he's going to use it in those ways to draw people to himself for us to be light in a dark world that people would see something different. And so this design that he has for us, he's uniquely gifted us for. He's given us the the ability to do this in him through the spirit. And it's all for his glory and our good. Our greatest joy will be found in that. 
And so God has called us into this. And so if we're going to have a biblical worldview, we're going to see things the way God has said they are. It's not going to happen apart from functioning as we're called to as his body. as the church. They go hand in hand. And so we read across the Bible to see everything that he says. And then we let God's word stand over us because he knows what is best. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of your word. We thank you that you love us so much. That you have saved us into a family. That you bring people in our lives that know and love you, that want to encourage us and walk with us in that. I pray that we would see that afresh today. Give us a clear vision of what it looks like to be your body, to be your family of faith that's encouraging one another and pointing each other to who you are and what you've done. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.